continuing in our series that's entitled, What Were You Thinking? And uh, our, we began this series a couple of Sundays ago, and last weekend, unfortunately, I was unwell. planned on doing Lesson 2 last weekend and Lesson 3 this weekend, because I'll be away next weekend. But uh, So, I didn't preach last weekend, so that means I can preach twice as long today. So, there's a man of faith and trust. But... Uh, but no, we'll try and sort of do both of these pieces and hopefully get you home before it's dark. Amen. We're opening with 2 Timothy chapter 3, sorry, chapter 1, and starting at verse 6. It says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of a sound mind. Amen. I took a few minutes in the first lesson to explain that in the original Greek text where we get the phrase or the words sound mind from, in this verse it's not a reference to sanity or the absence thereof, but uh, rather to discipline and self-control. And that the book of Galatians, written by the same Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 5 lists for us the, the works of the flesh and it also lists for us the fruit of the Spirit or the, the things that we should be producing in our lives when we're Spirit-filled. And one of those fruit or a part of the fruit of the Spirit is temperance in the King James Bible or we would perhaps better know that as self-control. And when we consider this in light of other scriptures that speak of the ongoing transformation that God desires in our lives when we're born again, we see a consistent mention of ideas like the renewing of our mind, the renewing of the spirit of our mind, of minding the things of the spirit, I think Romans says, of casting down imaginations and strongholds, which we know are in our minds. And so we're not talking about the power of positive thinking. We're not talking about self-help. We're not talking about some weird form of meditation, although meditation on the Word of God is a good thing, but we're talking about how God transforms us. And so together with the Word of God, the Spirit of God produces a sound mind or one that is disciplined and is constantly, everybody say constantly, constantly learning to think in a manner that is more in line with the Word of God and less in line with our carnal, natural, sinful thinking. And in our first lesson, we considered that how we think about God is, is very, very important. That's kind of where it begins from. And we acknowledge that it is important that when we get together to hear the Word of God, you may remember some of this, it matters who's preaching the Word of God to us, amen? We don't just put an ad in Gumtree every week and say, if you'd like to have a shot, let us know, we'll book you in. We don't do that because we believe that there are things, you know, the Word of God tells us that it's profitable for doctrine it's profitable for instruction it's it's profitable for correction and reproof there we need to teach the word of god and so we are careful and i think we expect our pastors as a whole and i hope you expect me as your pastor to be a protector of, of true doctrine but we added to that concept that was a, a corporate idea but we added to that concept the idea that every one of us to a certain degree has a pulpit in our minds uh, not physically obviously but we we have a place in our minds that People, the things speak to us. And it's up to us to decide who's on the preaching roster in our brain. 
It's up to us to decide who we're listening to and what we think about God matters. And so with, that, with how we think about God, when, when we grasp in our limited capacity, and we all are in, when, we consider, when we're considering God, we are very limited. But in our limited capacity, we grasp that Jesus is both holy and loving. He's both righteous and kind. He's majestic and he's merciful. He's all-powerful and he's also full of grace. He's the King of kings, but he's also our redeemer. He's creator and savior. And all of these things seem to be opposites, but when we can comprehend that he will never compromise his holiness, but that his love made a way to satisfy his judgment and to redeem us, it should change the way that we think about him. It should change how we live and it should change how we worship. Now, worship, worship is an act of will. Worship is a choice. Sometimes worship is easier than other times, but it doesn't mean it's any less necessary. And worship is not measured in volume. As I said earlier, God is not hard of hearing. But worship is, is, is measured in the investment of our heart and the, the, the sincerity and the genuine nature of our desire to praise the Lord. And so we're going to move on this week from considering how we think about God and spend the next few minutes talking about how we think about ourselves. It always goes really quiet when you start to talk about a subject like that. Not a single pin was dropped. On one hand, the Word of God warns us against pride. Amen. Scripture lets us know that pride leads to destruction. The world likes to say that pride comes before a fall, but that's actually a misquote of the Word of God. The Bible says that a haughty look comes before a fall, but that pride comes before destruction. The, the, the world's always looking for a way to soften Scripture. But pride come, leads to destruction. The Bible also tells us that God resists the proud. If you read Romans chapter 1, particularly the second half of Romans chapter 1, you will read about the downward spiral of humanity when they refused to acknowledge God, when they refused to recognize that he was God, when they refused to do what he wanted them to do, to submit themselves to his, his commandments and to his word, and they chose to worship the, I think the scripture says they chose to worship the creature rather than the creator. And so the Lord allowed them to get the consequences of their choices. And it began, you read that second part of Romans 1, it's, it's a terrible passage of scripture in the sense of it reflects the depravity and the wickedness of man when he shuts God out of his existence. And in, in the midst of all that depravity, one of the symptoms that is described as being a part of humanity is it says that men became proud. So pride is, is a very a negative thing in the sight of God. And the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, and I think it's Second Timothy, I could be wrong, but he wrote to Timothy... And he described men being proud as one of the signs of the perilous times that would come in the last days. So pride is, in the setting of being sinful, is God resists pride. And pride, if you want a definition, is the quality of having an excessively high opinion of oneself or one's importance. We all know people like that. And so hopefully as God's people... We don't want to be proud. We need to be conscious of not allowing pride to get into our hearts and our minds. But the other extreme, so on one extreme we have pride. The other extreme is that when we believe that we are worthless, when we believe that we are without value, that we are unlovable, that we have no intrinsic value. The word intrinsic 
means belonging naturally to or in the context of what we're talking about, it means having value simply because of who we are, not because of any connection with what we do. And it's, it's quite sobering to realize that while God resists the proud, when we see ourselves as worthless and good for nothing, we resist God. God resists the proud. But when we think we've got no value and God is not interested in us and we're worthless because of all this big long list of reasons, our past, our experiences, whatever those things may be, when we insist on that, we are resisting God. When we reject what He thinks about us, when we reject His love for us and we reject what He wants to do in us and through us. And strangely enough, it's just as hindering or paralyzing as pride. It's the other end of the spectrum. But it cripples what God wants to do in our lives just as much as pride does. One writer said it like this. I didn't get his name, so whoever he was, I apologize. But the subject of our self-concept or our self-thinking creates a kind of paradox. The Bible-believing Christian knows that he is a sinner, that in himself dwells no good thing, and that in himself he has no merit with God. And yet, like a paradox, or two things that shouldn't go together but do, At the same time, he also knows that as a creation of God, created in God's image and redeemed by his grace, he has value and purpose in life. So how do we strike a proper balance? How do we avoid the self-centered approach and the focus of the world and at the same time have a biblical concept of self, a proper view of our own value and purpose that sets us free to serve the living God, that sets us free from those thoughts and feelings that tie us in knots and ruin our personalities, create false agendas and motives so that people are incapacitated for ministry. I thought that was worth quoting. So how should we think about ourselves? In the natural, much of our lives are made up of relationships and work. Think about your day-to-day lives. Relationships and work fill up a lot of your time. And because of that, how people often think about themselves is often a product of their relationships or how others make them feel and their performance or what they do. And these areas do have some importance because healthy relationships and being able to function matter. Amen? Those things are not unimportant. But when that kind of thinking drifts across into unrealistic ideas such as I must be loved or approved by every single person in my life and I have no value unless I'm doing a good job of something and only have worth by doing, what that does is it produces thinking that is not only unhealthy, it is ungodly. It's ungodly. Paul taught us to have the right mindset about ourselves. In Romans 12 and 3, he said, For I say unto you, through the grace given unto me, To every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. There needs to be balance. There needs to be, that that goes back with that idea of discipline. According as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now, I'm not heading into self help and counseling. There's other people who can help you with that this morning. But a couple of questions that are possibly worth considering. And I don't want anybody to call out an answer. But what do you feel like you're worth as a person? Do you feel good about who you are or do you wish you were someone else? I don't think I know anybody that didn't wish they were someone else at some point in their life, even if that someone else was Superman or, or whoever it was. 
Have I accepted who I am as a person? Not my sin or sinful habits or problems, but the uniqueness that God has created in me as a person. Psalm 139 and 14, and many of us can quote it. Some of us have trouble believing it. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. And when you take the King James out of that and paraphrase that a little bit, it, it, it says, I'm going to worship you because you made me this way. I'm going to worship you because this is how you designed me and you did a marvelous job. Now, we're trying to stay away from pride. Let's not get too excited. And that my soul, I believe that. I accept that at the level of my heart and my soul. There's a challenge for you right there. Amen. How we answer those questions can play a key role in what we do in our lives, how we live our lives, in the joy we do or do not experience in life. You know, I read a quote the other day. I don't think he was known as an apostolic preacher, but Abraham Lincoln said that he's come to realize that men are basically as happy as they decide they want to be. I thought that was worth hanging on to. The way we treat others and how we respond to people and to God. Often we tend to act in harmony with our mental self-portrait. If we don't like the kind of person we are, we think nobody else likes us as well. And if they do, we want to know what their motives are. And that influences our social life, our job performance, our relationships with others and so on. When the way that we think about ourselves is primarily a product of relationships, comparison and performance, we will always be held hostage to the changes that take place in those areas. Relationships change. There are going to be people around you that are better than you at some things. In certain seasons of life, you'll be more productive than you are in others. But because of that, if those are the things that we use as our primary measurements, we will always be held hostage and we will go back and forth between having pride and having no value, depending on the season, depending on the day, depending on the environment. Our thinking about ourselves must be grounded in the grace of God cannot be in what's going on in the environment it must be grounded in the grace of God we have to be able to believe that God made me in his image turn to your neighbor and say God made me in his image I say it like you believe it <laughs> we also have to accept that our sin corrupted that image amen but he loves us Enough to die for us to restore that image and restore that relationship. Romans 8 tells us that he has adopted us by his spirit. He has made you uniquely with your personality and your gifts. What is it about human beings that we want somebody else's abilities? Why are we never content with the ones we have? We always want to be like somebody else. Do what somebody else can do when God has created you by specific design. You're not an accident. You're not made up of leftover parts that he had in a box under the workbench. You are made in his design, by him, in his image. Now, that doesn't mean there's no room for growth and all those things, but he has made each of us uniquely with our personality, with our gifts, with our talents. He provides for us as a father, provides for his children. 
When your children, particularly when they're small, they don't add a lot of productivity to your household. Your four-year-old's not doing a lot to help around the house. But you, if you are good parents, you work hard. You sacrifice because you love that child because it's your child and that is the only reason. You don't come home and go, what'd you do today? Oh, no dinner for you. You've been slack. You provide simply because they are your child. Now, as they get older, hopefully as good parents, we want them to start to contribute. It's not just because the labor's free. That's maybe a small part of it. But it's also because you want them to become competent adults. But it does not change the reason you care for them. We have to understand that God provides for us simply because he loves us and he is our father, not because we lighten his load or make his day easier. We do some chores around the house so he doesn't have to do them. He does it just because he loves us. Our thinking needs to be set upon the fact that he continues to work on me and to shape me into an image of his design because he loves me. See, faith is not only required for salvation, but faith is also required to believe and trust that he made you who you are and that you are able to give him glory and honor. All things, the Bible says, are created for his pleasure, which means that if you will allow him, you can be a vessel that gives him glory. And these things are true of every single one of us. Amen. Nobody in their right mind thinks that they are flawless. If you do, your mind is not right. Nobody thinks they're flawless and nobody thinks they don't have an ongoing need to continue to grow and mature. But a healthy biblical view of ourselves produces a trust and a willingness to allow God to produce that change. The extremes of pride and self-negation or having no value, both hinder the change and growth that God desires. They both hinder that. Because one doesn't think you need it. The proud person thinks, I've already ticked all the boxes. And the other one thinks, it's not possible to get any better. I'm just useless. I've got no value. I'll never be of any value. And both of those tie the hands of God. But we need to have confidence that is grounded in the grace of Jesus Christ. It's not about me being awesome or you being awesome. It's about him being awesome. And because we belong to him and he has chosen that we would be his children, our value in his sight is not based on performance. It's not based on how many friends you have on social media. It's not based on how much money you have in the bank. It's simply because you belong to him. And that's how we have to learn, and I tell you, we all have to learn it continually to think about ourselves. Let's read 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Paul writing to the younger man, he said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me. Who enabled him? Jesus did. For that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, and I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit, for this cause I obtained mercy, 
that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is declaring, I was a terrible sinner. In fact, he said, I was the chief. I was the gold medal. If there was an Olympic for sinning, I won the gold medal. He said, I was the chief. He said, but the grace and the love of God has been extended to me. And it is amazing. He said, Jesus came to save sinners, and I'm the worst of the bunch. He didn't think he just needed an attitude adjustment. He had people thrown into prison. And through my testimony, Paul said, he said, but God is using me to show others what he can do in their lives as well. And through my testimony, they can believe on Jesus for everlasting life. That's why Jesus has put me in the ministry. He said he took me because basically if God can save me, he can save anybody. That's effectively what he was saying. And that caused him to do what? To give him glory. Now unto the king eternal. Amen. Confidence and assurance in who Jesus is and what he has done needs to be how our thinking about ourselves begins. Now, obviously relationships matter. Doing a good job matters. Those things aren't not important but if that's where you base your self-view upon it's going to be up and down like a roller coaster amen so our lessons this series is called what were you thinking and we began in the first week about how we think about god because if he's not in the mix then any more consideration of biblical thinking becomes pretty pointless he's got to be in the mix And we have to think about the Lord correctly, but then we have to adjust how we think about ourselves because that affects our relationship with God and also how he's able to work on us. If you you don't believe that Jesus can use you for his glory, then you'll never see his will come to pass in your life. I've known people, I've had very dear friends, people that, that God called to be preachers of the word that struggled to believe that God would use them and it, it hindered what God was trying to do. They were paralyzed with their own insufficiencies rather than putting their confidence and their trust in the Lord. But once once we've invited Jesus into our lives, this self-view is a big deal because it affects how we go moving forward. When Jesus was asked what is the first commandment or the commandment that everything else is built on, everything else flows from, in Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28, it says, And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? That's not the first on the list. That's the one that, that really matters. And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Now, how we think about God And how we think about ourselves is directly connected to our ability to obey that first commandment. Because if I'm going to love him with everything I have, I have to believe that I can do that. I have to believe that I can be involved in that. But once we get to that, this introduces the last area of thinking I want us to talk about, and that is how we think about others. How we think about others. Again, this thinking doesn't exist in a vacuum. 
but it is inseparably connected to how we think about God and how we think about ourselves. Jesus made that clear as he continued in his response to the question about the first commandment. Because in Mark 12 and 31, he said, And the second is like namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. You know, Jesus wasn't asked for the first two commandments. The scribes said to him, Which is the first? And Jesus gave the first, but then he added the second. And the reason he added the second is, is because they go together and cannot be separated. To love God with all that we have is very difficult to demonstrate in isolation. It's very difficult to do that if it's just you and Jesus and nobody else. And the Apostle John wrote to us in his first epistle, I believe it was, and if one of the things he said was, we ought to walk in light and not in darkness. That's the first commandment. We love God. But then he went on to say that if we say we love God, but we hate our brother, we're liars. There's commandment two. We have to have first and second commandment. Amen. And I want to spend the rest of this morning just having a look at a chapter in Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Don't think that means we're done soon. Don't get too excited. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 1. I'm going to do this chapter in a few chunks. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, in the place of power and authority. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, and until that happens, mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience, in the which you also walked sometime when you lived in them. But now you also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. So the first portion of this chapter of Colossians 3 addresses the change that is supposed to take place in us when we are risen with Christ. Well, that means when we have the Spirit of God living in us, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, shall make alive or quicken your mortal bodies. So when we are risen with Christ, there are things that are supposed to happen in our lives, the things to take out, things to bring in. We are to change our affections, or the old life is to die. There's a reason the Scripture uses the word mortify. We are to mortify or kill our old behaviors and practices. Things like immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, anger, malice. Malice, to understand malice is to, that we desire or we enjoy the suffering of others. Ungodly communications out of our mouths. This is my responsibility and your responsibility as individuals. We have to decide what, where, and who revives those things in their lives because if we're going to... Anybody know that when you crucify the flesh, it can come back? Anybody repent once and never had a problem since? Anybody had an attitude that seems to be on repeat loop? Right, so we know that the things that are still in our carnal nature, we have to keep them in check. And so we have to be wise enough to recognize the, the what, the where, and the who who can breathe life back into some of those things. Amen. There are, there are people 
that can, unfortunately, encourage us to behave in an ungodly fashion. Amen. And I have to decide to kill that influence. If I am sincere in my walk with God, now, but you might say, well, pastor, aren't we supposed to reach the lost? Yes, we are. But if you're honest with yourself that when you spend time with somebody, they're influencing you instead of the other way around, you're not reaching them, they're reaching you. We've got to be honest with, oh, no, I'm okay, I've got this. Yeah, we've got to be wise. It's my responsibility as an individual. Why? Because the wrath of God, this is what we just read, God's judgment, God's wrath will be the outcome of those things. The things that we used to walk in that we're not supposed to be walking in anymore. So that's, that's the personal stuff. Then the Apostle Paul changes our focus towards how we are with others. Pick it up in verse 9 of Colossians 3. Lie not to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. So the old man was a liar as well. And have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity or sacrificial love, which is the bond of per- 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 perfectness is the word I'm trying to say. So charity, that sacrificial love, is the glue that holds us complete in his family. So there's a few things Paul said. First thing he said, don't lie to others. Don't be dishonest. That's the old man. He said, the new man is renewed in knowledge. What are you thinking? Ethnicity, religious background, rich or poor, doesn't matter. We're all brethren. We're all in the family of God. And so then he said, instead of all that other junk that we used to be involved in, that he spoke about at the start of the chapter, there's a new list of behaviors that God wants us to work on and to produce, obviously, by his spirit. The first one is bowels of mercy. Now, whenever you see that word, bowels, in the King James, it's talking about a depth. It's talking about an intensity of feeling. So in other words, it means don't be fake on the surface, but be genuine. Be real. Genuinely have compassion and mercy. We need to have kindness. We need to be kind. Amen. We need to have humbleness of mind. Paul already spoke to us about not thinking too highly of ourselves. We need to have meekness. We spoke about meekness in our Bible class earlier this morning. Long-suffering. Who likes to suffer? Nobody. Who likes to suffer long? Extra nobody. But we have to have patient endurance. Patient endurance. Forbearing one another. That simply means putting up with each other. Forgiving when you quarrel. Such a gentle word, quarrel. What we do is not quarreling, really. But just like Jesus forgives us. Quarrels, irritations, hurt feelings and misunderstandings are a part of life. When we won't forgive... It is because our thinking about God and our thinking about ourselves is not right. Because if I'm going to trust in His grace for my life, I have to trust in His grace for your life as well. Can't have one without the other. For every reason that we have not to forgive somebody, Jesus could use the same reason not to forgive us. 
You know, we, we say that, you know, you shouldn't walk away from God because of what somebody said or did. We use that like a cliche. Don't walk away from God because somebody did the wrong thing. Don't take that out on God. And that's true. But biblically speaking, we also shouldn't walk away from God's people. If we walk away from brothers or sisters easily, now I say that deliberately because I know there's exceptions. I'm not saying you join a church, you know, you're a hostage. That's not what I'm saying. I know there are reasons sometimes. There's always exceptions. But if we walk away easily, it's because we do not value the relationships the way that God would have us to. If you're married, raise your hand if you're married. If you don't know and you are married, you're in trouble. Okay, we've got a lot of married people in the building. Okay, all you married folk, listen up. All you folks that aren't married, you listen up as well. And anybody that's not one of those two groups, listen up. But if you're married particularly if you've been married for a while, here's some things I can say with great confidence without the word of knowledge, without the gifts of the Spirit. You've irritated each other. You've upset each other. You've possibly angered each other. You've let each other down. Maybe disappointed each other. You may have even had seasons where you find it hard to like one another. Hard to imagine. A lot of noise coming from Brother Frosty in the back there. I'm a bit worried. When talk to you afterwards, Sister Mandy. We'll pray for you. But here's the question. Are you still married? Most of us hopefully saying yes. Why? Why are you still married? And don't, don't go home and say, I had thought about that. Now I don't want to be anymore. That's not the point. Hopefully, hopefully, It's because you value the relationship more than the bumps in the road. Hopefully you care enough and you made a commitment that has value that you don't bail out easily. Now I'm not saying again, I'm not saying there aren't reasons why sometimes that has to happen. There are some situations where people are treated so poorly it's not even safe to stay together. So I'm not, please again, I'm using this as a principle. What I'm trying to say is just because you do upset each other sometimes doesn't mean that, you know, he left his dirty socks on the floor for the 10,000th time. That's it. I'm out of here. I'm not coming back. You know, I won't get into too many examples. I'll get too close to the bone. But we are committed to the value of the relationship more than the bumps in the road. And so what you do is you work it out, right? You forgive. You grow together. And through that process, your relationship can actually become stronger. I'm not saying the key to a strong marriage is to fight more often. But reconciliation with problems can actually produce relationship strength. But only if you're committed to the promises that you made. If you've got an escape clause for everything that goes wrong, you're not going to last. But you probably, depending on how you were married, you probably stood at the front of a church, and I've used this example before, before a preacher, some of you, it was me. And you made all manner of strong promises and you had no idea what you were saying. You promised to do all this wonderful stuff because you're in love. And most of us can't even remember what we said when we got married. But we made these grand sweeping promises to love and honor and cherish and obey and sickness and health and good and bad and all this stuff. And we hit the first bump in the road and we're calling the pastor, I think I need a divorce. But you made a commitment. You made a commitment. And if my love 
for God cannot be separated from my love for you. How should I value our relationship and what should I be willing to overcome? How do we think about each other? There's a wonderful tool or key in the next few verses and I won't be too much longer. Colossians 3, 15 says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called into one body, and be ye thankful. Do you know, there's a whole lot of problems that people could avoid if they read the last three words of that verse. Be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. So what does Paul say? Be thankful for His body. That's what he's saying. Be thankful for His body. Then he's saying, get the Word of God into yourself. He's saying not a little, but richly. Richly, it's what it says. It says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That means lots of it. Quality, maturity. Worship together with grace and gratitude in your hearts. That's what it says. Admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with grace. And whatever we do, however we handle it, do it in the name of Jesus or how he wants it to be done in a matter that honors him. You know, we read that verse, everything you do in word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus. And we love that verse when we're talking about the need to be baptized in Jesus' name. But it doesn't just apply there. It applies everywhere because the passage is not even about getting baptized. The passage is about how we treat one another. We have to do that in Jesus' name. Or in a fashion that gives glory and honor to his name. And then Paul goes on to specifically include our families. Colossians 3 and 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Not anybody else's, just yours. As it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, Provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. The Paul's saying, wives, let your husbands lead your marriage. Let them lead your family. Husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. Children, do what you're told. I need to say it louder so they can hear me upstairs. <laughs> Fathers, don't set unrealistic demands on your children, as this will cause them to give up and be angry, discouraged, and bitter. That doesn't mean your kids will never be upset with you. If you're a parent and your kids are never upset, you're doing something wrong. And just in case you thought it stopped with your family and you could go to your workplace and be whatever you want to be, verse 22 says, Servants, modern application would be employees, obeying all things your masters according to the flesh. What that means is they're not Christian. They're not godly. They're people you're working for, which means they're not Christian, but you still have to do what they say. He said, not with eye service. You know, that means, you know, that's... That's the person on the job whose nickname is Sensolite. They only come on when somebody goes past. Don't, don't just be a good worker when the boss is there. Do the right thing because you do it unto the Lord. Do the right thing, do it unto the Lord. Amen. He said you, you do it heartily as to the Lord and not under men. So how you work on the job is not about your boss. It's about your Lord. That's what the Bible says. Oh, but you don't know my boss. It doesn't matter. There's no clause there that says excuse with bad bosses. 
It says you, you do what you're supposed to do with the right attitude. Knowing that of the Lord you shall receive a reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord. You know, if we approached our employment as a, as a service unto the Lord, it would change our attitude towards our jobs. But he that doeth wrong, the Lord lets us know, he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he has done. And there's no respect of persons. God keeps the bills. Don't worry, he knows who's done what. He'll take care of his business. But this, these, these lessons, your mind, my mind, is, is so crucial to our successful walk with God. What is success? Success is that when he comes back, I go to be with him. That's success. But how I think about him, how I think about God, how I think about myself, and how I think about others, those three areas are massive in being successful in serving the Lord. Stand with me if you would this morning. That we would add our prayer with the psalmist in Psalm 19 and 14 who said, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Lord, we love you today. We are so blessed, so privileged to be your people, so privileged to be washed in your blood, called by your name, filled with your spirit, Lord Jesus. God, you've not, Lord, left us to our own devices, but you've given us your word. You've given us your spirit, but you've also given us your people. And so, Lord God, I pray today that these lessons will have challenged our thinking, that we would have a fresh desire, Lord, that our minds would be changed, to think that you, the way you would have us to think, Lord, about you firstly, about ourselves and about others, we pray. Lord, may we give you glory. May we be vessels that give you honor. May people know that we are your children. Lord God, may we be a good witness to them, not by our own strength and power, but by your abilities, your understanding, your grace, and your mercy, we pray. Help us, Lord God, I pray, to tear down strongholds, to cast down imaginations, Lord, to set our minds firmly on you because your word says that you will keep us in perfect peace. 